podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to News Round on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick and I'm joined to discuss Liverpool's deadline day signing of Arthur Mello by Gab Marcotti. Gab, thanks for taking the time. How are you keeping? All good. My pleasure. And thanks for having me on. Now, I don't know if you remember this. You almost certainly won't. The last time we were on a podcast together was to discuss Liverpool signing Mario Balotelli. And um, I think I speak for every Liverpool fan by saying, I really hope this transfer works out better than that transfer did. <laughs> Well, look, the good news is um, this is a lot cheaper um, mm. and a lot lower expectations. Um, I, it's funny because Archer's a bit of a, he's a bit of an enigma, right? If you if you go through his seasons at, at, at Barcelona um, and in fact at Juve, uh, there's a talented player in there. There's an international player in there. Um, we just don't get to see it very often. Mm. And I think the thinking is from from Liverpool is this is low risk, high reward. If it doesn't work out, boom. You know, send them back in January, get somebody else on loan. Yeah, and if it does work out, all of a sudden you potentially have the backup to Thiago that you've been crying out for, someone that can replace Naby Keita when he moves on next summer, at a fairly low price, a deal that won't take any negotiating because that that side of things is already done. It's just something they can trigger. So it does seem like a win-win situation. Like, worst case, it doesn't really work. They send him back, no harm, no foul. You mentioned he hasn't really been able to show what he can do at at Juventus. And I think the same was true at Barcelona. He's four years now in Europe, having come across from Gremio, where he had that great season. He was newcomer of the year in the Brazilian Serie A. He was picked in the team of the season. He finished third in the South American Player Player of the Year awards. But he played quite an expansive role in that Gremio team. Whereas at Barcelona... He was managed by Valverde, who very much limits what he wants his central midfielders to do, puts a lot of tactical restraints on them. He's come to Italy. He hasn't exactly walked into the great Juve team that had won so many league titles in a row. He walked into Andrea Pirlo trying to learn how to be a manager on the fly with an aging team that was very much reliant on an aging striker in Cristiano, aging central defenders in Bonucci and Cialini. And even though they're still great players, 
that Juve team felt like it was coming to the end of an era. Pirlo didn't really seem to have a definitive idea of what he wanted his midfielders to do. He leaves and Allegri comes in and Allegri, like Valverde, does put a lot of restraints on what he wants his midfielders to do or what he lets them do. So do you think maybe it's just a thing where he's almost been bottled up a little bit too much and asked to do too specific a role and not play to his strengths? Honestly, no. And, you know, I know, I know Pirlo, you know, he came in with no experience, no, no real preparation. Um, I think he had a pretty clear idea of, of what he wanted, of what he wanted the team to do. Um, they obviously had, you know, they, they did bring in some good, some good young talent, um, when he was there, whether, you know, you had, you had Federico Chiesa, you had, you know, uh, a, a number of guys, um, uh, you had Matthijs de Ligt. Um, I think the real issue with Archer is that he kind of went off the boil at Barcelona. Um, the, the whole reason he came to Juventus, I wrote a whole column about this on ESPN. I think it's, it's pretty much well known is he came to Juventus in a swap deal with Miral and Pjanic. Um, and it was one of those accounting swap deals. Uh, it's legal. Let me be clear, but it's one of those deals where you can, you swap one player for the other. You can put almost whatever valuation you want on them mm. and through the magic of amortization, you look, you've made a profit. Um, everybody knew that when, when Archer came in. Uh, and I think it kind of put a bit of a negative vibe on it. He's also had niggling injury injuries, certainly in his two years at Juve. But when he has played, he's been pretty inconsistent. You can see that there's a player in there, right? He's comfortable on the ball. I think he's got the right level of aggression. I mean, again, by the standards of La Liga and Serie A, you know, he's not, you know, you, you didn't just sign, you know, Jimmy Case or anything, right? But, um, you know, he's, the, the thing is, the not neither Pirlo nor Allegri ultimately particularly liked him or or trusted him. And I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is he wasn't able to play very well when he was at Juve. Um, I think the difference in the reason it might make sense for Liverpool is that I think he realizes the clock is ticking. He's going to be highly motivated. Um, you know, he's got, he'll be on a team with obviously others who are of Brazilian extraction, um, if not downright Brazilian. Um and I think he's going to realize that he either has to produce or he won't play. Um, and I don't, you know, you mentioned there the backup to Thiago Alcantara. That's how, that's how some people have seen him as kind of like a deep line playmaker. He's a good passer. He's good on the ball. But I don't really think he is that type of playmaker. And he's certainly not in Thiago's class, in my opinion. No, um, I don't think so either. Yeah, I, I think I think he's probably closer to what, people thought Nabi Keita might be. Um, you know, the question is, uh, I mean, he's maybe a little bit better at breaking from midfield. Well, which I guess was part of what Nabi Keita was supposed to do more regularly. 
I think he's there. I, I think he's a body. I think he's there to adapt. Now, this is a guy who's got 20-odd caps for Brazil. If he recaptures his mojo, then then it's a different story. Then he's somebody who I think can be a real contributor. But, you know, you know better than me. With all the injuries Liverpool um, have had in the middle of the park, my own personal view that, you know, Gini Vinaldum left and was never replaced. And obviously, Henderson, you know, not getting any younger, not being injured as well. I think it's important to have another guy who can who can come in there, add to the numbers, um, and then if if on top of that he's good, well, then that's a bonus. Yeah, I mean the the thing with Liverpool's midfield is it's got the two aging. Well, Milner is aged and Henderson is aging, and they're both clearly in a sharp decline. Henderson last season to begin this season just has not looked the right player at all. There's those two. Then you've got your sort of Thiago, Fabinho, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who doesn't offer a whole lot at the moment because he's been injured and whatever else, who are in that sort of you know 28, 29 to 31 sort of mark. Naby Keita's the next in line. If he could stay fit, he, he's shown he can be a good player, but he just doesn't stay fit. And then there's nobody else. Then there's Curtis Jones and Harvey Elliott, who are very, very young players. There's nobody in that sort of 22 to 27 age bracket at all. So Liverpool haven't succession planned all that well in midfield, as opposed to in defence, they've done quite a good job. And in attack, they've done quite a good job. But it almost feels like the midfield has been neglected a little bit. You mentioned Ginny Wijnaldum leaving and just wasn't replaced. And he was an every game starter and was always available. And even though some people looked at his role and thought, well, you know, what does he really do? What he did was all the unseen things. He blocked off passing lanes. He killed transition attacks by the opposition. He funneled the ball quite well and he recycled the ball quite well. And someone that did those fundamental things was lacking last season. Now, obviously Liverpool went on had a very good season. But you could feel it at times that they were lacking just one more in midfield who could do clever things that sort of went under the radar. And I do wonder if maybe Arthur can fill some of that. Can he also, you know, maybe play with Fabinho and Thiago in a three? Do you think that could be a role where he plays a little bit more advanced and is there to facilitate linking play between the midfield and the attack? getting Salah into better positions, enabling Trent down the right. Is that a role you think he could fill? Potentially. Um, although I'm not, I'm not sure he's got he's got the legs necessarily for that. Um, certainly the way he's been used, you know, has been very much of a, of a central midfielder, you know, kind of maybe in between Fabinho and Archer. He doesn't have, sorry, Fabinho and Thiago. He doesn't have Thiago's creativity, a range of passing. He doesn't have, you know, Fabinho's grit and, and defensive uh, abilities. Mm. Um, but he can hang on to the ball. Um, he can recycle balls. He can pass it sideways. He's probably, and I say this with the greatest respect, when you're, I, I, for me, and again, you know better than me, but when I've seen Liverpool, when I think sometimes, you know, in some situations, they, they've struggled against teams that have, you know, put, eight men in the box, right? Yeah. And and that's why Thiago's there. Uh, you know, in those situations, you either look for, you know, the set piece or the one-on-one, or, 
you have a guy who can pick out passes. I think Archer can probably do that better than most current Liverpool midfielders, other than Thiago, obviously. Um, so, so that's a skill that he brings. Um, I, I think he's good at, at if you want to ping when you want to ping the ball around, he can do that um, and not lose it. I mean, he's, he's better on the ball than you know when he's good and he's on his game. Um, he's better on the ball than Jordan Henderson, in my opinion. Henderson obviously brings other things to the table, uh, but you know, I think the, a lot of the work that Klopp's going to have to do with this guy is is psychological because. You know, he certainly had disciplinary issues when he was at Barcelona. Mm. Um, under under Pirlo, he, he didn't seem to kind of take on board what Pirlo wanted to do, and he had injuries. With Allegri, the relationship just never took off. And it was very obvious this summer that, you know, he was one guy that Juve were just trying to get rid of all summer long. And, and I don't say get rid of is you know, and like, oh, look, you know, Liverpool just, you know, picked up somebody's rubbish. There is a player in there. Uh, we've seen him. Um, you know, worst comes to worst. I think he comes in, he plays, and he picks up some minutes for other players. And I think that's important. Yeah. Um, you know, best case scenario, Klopp turns his head around and you have somebody who you want to keep around and who can start and, and, and you know, and be significant going forward. Um, it's funny. Way I go back to what you said before. I, I was a big Curtis Jones fan two years ago. It's not like I don't like him now, but undeniably, I think last season, partly through injury, partly through whatever other reason, he didn't kick on the way, um, the way maybe Klopp thought he might. You know, when I look at the ease the, with the way Vinaldum left and wasn't replaced, I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe he sees this great future ahead for Curtis Jones. Hasn't happened thus far, but he's still very young. You know, maybe it happens this season if he can stay fit. Yeah, I mean, last season was definitely one of stagnation for Curtis. Uh, as he said, injuries, he had an ankle problem, then he had an eye problem. And it's very much the case with Klopp where, you know, early in the season he will try and make as much use of his squad as possible. But like with most top managers, as the season narrows down and you get to the business end of things, he tends to shrink the the pool of players. I mean... You know, we saw Harvey Elliott this season at the beginning of last season before the injury, basically a first-choice player, but came back in February and by April, May was sitting in the stands, rotating with Curtis to be either the last sub on the bench or in the stands. So Klopp obviously doesn't want to, whether it's expose young players to big risk situations or big pressure situations or whatever. But I, I felt last season Curtis missed an opportunity to really step forward with Wijnaldum gone. Because you look at Liverpool's midfield group, Henderson has had a lot of injuries since Klopp took over. Thiago obviously has injury problems. Keita has injury problems. Milner has had more injury problems. La- last season, not so much, but the pre- two previous seasons... I think he had 11 different knocks and niggles that caused him to miss games. Um, You don't want to put too much pressure on Harvey Elliott. And I thought there's going to be a big opening here for Curtis to step in and really show whether or not he's going to be of the caliber. You know, this was an opportunity for him to stake a claim or show that maybe he'd need to go elsewhere and develop by playing regularly. And he missed that. 
Um, so again, he's going to be one. He's back now. He's fit again. So the hope will be that he can step in and, and take some minutes off others. And like you said, with Arthur, as it, the worst case scenario is, you know, at minimum, he will just fill minutes because Thiago is not going to stop getting hurt. Naby Kate is not going to stop getting hurt. Henderson and Milner won't get less injury prone as they get older. Fabinho will always miss a run of games at some point in the season. He's never played, I don't think, more than 31 league games for us. So there are going to be games there to be filled. And at worst, Arthur can come in and just give you a decent performance and get you through a game. I I was going to ask, just out of my own curiosity, I don't believe he's done it since coming to Liverpool. But I'm just wondering, now that, you know, Konate is more settled and, you know, Joe Gomez is fit, might we see Matip? in midfield, perhaps filling in for Fabinho in some situations? Because obviously he played there at Schalke at times Mm. earlier in his career. But I don't think he's ever done that for Liverpool. No, he hasn't. He hasn't played a game for Liverpool in midfield. And there's been a few people that have suggested maybe that could be an option for us this year. If, If it came to, you know, Henderson was still injured and Fabinho needed a break or, or, or got hurt himself. I don't know if Klopp would do it. Like, he he's played Thiago in that role in his first season at the club, and it didn't really work. He's played Milner there, and it's worked to an extent. But, you know, against kind of the lesser teams in the division, whether he'd use Joel there, I, I don't know. I I feel like he might be more inclined to even move Trent into midfield before he'd move Joel back in because with the injury issues that Joel has had, and a lot of those are contact injuries, I think there's a feeling that Joel might just be a little bit fragile if he if he got put in midfield and was forced to make tackles. It probably ends with him having a spell on the sidelines. Yeah, I, I was just wondering about that because I think obviously you don't need me to tell you that you know midfield is important, but I think it's it's especially important. Um, I think this season, and again viewing it as somebody you know who's not a Liverpool fan, but just from what I've seen, and I haven't seen Liverpool in person yet this season, but. The my impression is that Mane did so much work off the ball, and it was so well coordinated um, that you know when when Liverpool counter pressed, you could get away sometimes with with the midfield perhaps you know not being tip top in terms of filling the spaces at the right time or mm. having that extra step or that extra intensity. Now obviously he's gone, and you know I'm not suggesting that well obviously we haven't seen much of Nunez but you know I'm not suggesting that Diaz and Nunez can't combine with, with Jota and Firmino and to provide that but obviously you've lost you've lost something there and I, I kind of feel that especially with the with the attacking fullbacks who are still there without that kind of first wave of counter press being so effective um while they're still building chemistry just puts more pressure on the middle of the park. And so maybe somebody who's more of a specialist when Fabinho is unavailable, um, you know, might, might help shield the defense. It definitely would. And I, I think a big part of that as well was, was Wijnaldum leaving because when Liverpool would commit to a, a counter press and they'd commit in numbers, Henderson from the right would become almost a fourth forward. 
Yes. And they could stretch across. And Wijnaldum would just sit right in next to Fabinho almost as a double pivot. And that would allow the two fullbacks to push forward as well. And they sort of had this block of four who would hold things together. And then the other six would go and try and win the ball back. Losing Wijnaldum, replacing him in the 11 with Thiago, obviously improves you on the ball, but not necessarily off the ball, even though Thiago's obviously he is a good player off the ball. and He's very clever. He's not as dynamic as Ginny. He's not as quick as Ginny. And Mane, Mane was a freak of nature when it came to his pressing, in, especially from, say, 2016 to 2020, the end of the title-winning season. Sadio, they'd show clips of him sometimes, like doing different bits of analysis on, on Sky and BT. And you'd see Sadio as a team was trying to figure out how to play out from the back against Liverpool and, and knocking it about. And you'd see Sadio edging one way, backpedalling another, and just getting his angles lined up to anticipate where the next ball would go. And as the ball was reaching that defender, Sadio was reaching them as well. Yeah. And behind him, you'd get Firmino and Robertson pressing in. Or if they turned the other way, Henderson would fill a gap. Or if they tried to go back, then it's Salah and Trent and Henderson. And Liverpool were just able to pin teams so well and a big part of that is Sadio gone, but also Firmino has declined as well. He's no longer got that same level of, of uh, intensity that he had a couple of years ago where he could press endlessly for 90 minutes as well. So losing both of those is a big, big blow. I, I completely agree um, with your assessment there. And and look, I mean, I think I think it'll come. You, you can You can develop chemistry over time if you've got the athletic tools to do it. And obviously, you know, Luis Diaz is, is a good athlete and and Darwin is too. But um, I think it takes time to build that chemistry. And also, I don't know how easily you can match that reading of the game, what you mentioned there about the, the angles that, that Sadio Mane would take. He's just such an intelligent player. I, I know that, you know, a lot of times there's other things uh, to focus on with him. Um, but you kind of forget how, in my opinion, he was probably the brightest um, attacking player Liverpool had, the, the most intelligent player. Mm. Um, but and you lose that because you know you you focus on his on his goals, on his work rate, on his selflessness, whatever. But he's just so smart, so efficient in his movement, and yeah, that takes a lot of replacing. Oh, completely. But I mean, the thing. Obviously, people think of Sadio, they think of the pace, they think of the goals. But, you know, it's forgotten how versatile he was as well. He he joined, he played right wing with Firmino and Coutinho. Then he went and played left wing and obviously was, I I think he was the best player in the league the year Liverpool won, won the title. And then last season, he transitioned into playing centre forward and playing it in the way Liverpool wanted it played. Almost, you know, combining... A, a traditional number nine with a false nine sort of role and bringing others into play and combining with Salah, combining with Diaz after he arrived. And he adapted to these things so quickly. It was just seamless. And I, again, as you said, I don't think you can do that without having a high level of game intelligence, without understanding tactical instruction, spatial awareness, positions. And he just did all those things very, very easily. And then... The, this, the pressing side of things, he was a machine. 
and if Diaz shows certainly the desire to press, but Sadio's game intelligence was on another level. Now maybe it can be coached into Diaz over time. Whereas with Sadio, it, it was almost, I suppose Sadio's advantage was he'd been in the Red Bull system and he'd been at Southampton. He had played pressing football before, whereas yeah. Diaz less so under, say, um, Conseil Sao at, at, at Porto playing more as a traditional winger, not not pressing uh, centre-backs and full-backs as much. But certainly it is something that they're missing at the moment is that that pressing from the front and then the second line is just so slow to to, to follow up as well it is having that knock-on effect. And as a result of that, you know, when the Ford's press is a little bit off and the midfield isn't sharp enough, teams are able to play through them a lot quicker, which I think is why we've seen so many occasions this season of Liverpool getting caught on the counter-attack. Like, but, but you know, it's funny that, that I, and I'm sorry if I'm prattling on here, but like this brings me to one of my huge personal pet peeves with football the way it is today. So we hire these fancy coaches like Jurgen Klopp or, 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 or Pep or whoever you care to name. And we say, Oh, you guys are tactically so smart. You're such good teachers. You're so good at getting your teams to play, you know, in a certain way that's entertaining and effective and so on. And then because of the way the fixture list is, these guys don't have time to work. I mean, you look at, and it's not just obviously this season, it's worse with the World Cup. But when we talk about building chemistry, I, I ask myself, when is Klopp supposed to do that? Like how many actual full proper training sessions and not kind of, you know, warm downs and walkthroughs do Liverpool actually have between now and the World Cup? If you actually go and count them, I mean, sure, you guys probably have people who keep track of this stuff. I, I, I'd be surprised if it was more more than half a dozen. And yeah. then you throw in the number of players who are missing in certain times. And and then you say, yeah, do it during preseason. Okay, fine. You do it during preseason. And then, you know, you sign Archer on, on, on the last day of the window and you're in preseason, you're traveling. And I, it's, it, it's weird. It, it's one of, I think the, the dysfunctions of the modern game that they have to play so many games to, to get the revenue in, but equally, they don't have time to actually, leaving aside recovery, which is obviously important in avoiding injury, but they don't have time to go and learn how to do the game well, which which to me makes makes the job Klopp and Pep and, and other top managers do even more amazing because they just don't have time to work. See, that's it. And I think, you know, we hear more and more from the likes of Pep and Klopp and Conte that they want to get players in in the summer early so they have that time to work and they don't want to be adding players late on. They want to have a full group. And then you're still going to have injuries in pre-season. You're going to have players that leave. You're going to have different things that crop up. And then, with like you said, the way this season is structured because of the World Cup, it's game, 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 game. Then an international break where half your players disappear off around the world. Then they come back and it's game, 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 game. And then it's off to the World Cup. And again, half your players are gone. And I know some clubs are looking at the World Cup, the break, and thinking, well, that's going to be a great opportunity for us to get some real coaching time in. But for the top clubs, most of their squads are going to be gone. They're going to be away at the World Cup with their nations. So you can do all the tactical work with what's left. 
But the bottom line is when those top players come back, they're going straight back into the team and they haven't worked on what you've been working on. So it is like there is clearly at this point some sort of reckoning that's going to happen or it feels like it will happen in terms of how many games there is and whether that's that the top clubs who are in Europe just bypass the League Cup completely and do that and then more and more teams play a reserve team in the FA Cup but but there are so many games and it is it it's it's getting to the point especially this year with the World Cup that we're going to see more and more of these soft tissue injuries yeah. and there's already a lot of them going around this year I mean there's a there's a good report I was at this uh, meeting of that FIFPro had on the eve of the Champions League final and they released you know they do these reports every year on on injuries and, and playing games in the red zone and blah 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 and you know they said okay there's a player health issue there but Obviously, you know, people don't have a lot of sympathy because they say players all make a lot of money, fine. But then they made the point, oh, but the quality of the games is going to suffer too because, you know, players are going to be half fit. They don't have time to train together. They don't have time to to go and and do this stuff. And, you know, the scary thing is, and and maybe I'm just kind of cynical here, I, I don't know how much fans care about the quality of the games. Um. You know, I, I've heard we've seen games last season in the Premier League, including games among top teams. I'm thinking, especially like over over Christmas and in January, the games are generally dire. But you know, oh, there's mistakes and like it finishes three two or whatever, and so it's exciting and so on and crash bang wallop and stuff like that. And, and I don't want to say like I'm like sort of some pretentious purist that I need to see football played without mistakes. No, I get that, but. I, I generally don't think a lot of people necessarily care that their team's not playing well from from like a, a tactical aesthetic mm. perspective. You know, as long as they win, as long as it's exciting, and um, so yeah. So I I think the only thing that's going to lead to a fixture reduction is the players standing up and saying, no, 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 we're going to have we're going to have clear limits on the number of games we play. We're going to you know clear limits on rest days, on the number of days that you can spend in, in, in the red zone and stuff like that. Until the players as a union have a strength to stand up for themselves, I don't think anything's going to change. No, probably not. And unfortunately, unlike, say, US sports, where especially, say, in the NFL, they've made uh, good moves in terms of limiting the number of practice days in the offseason, things like that, they have the collective bargaining agreements in American sports where when they sit down to negotiate the money breakdown, the players are at the table with the, you know, their, their reps or whatever, and they're able to make their own demands with the owners and they'll come to a common ground. But that's one league. Like, it's the NFL is one league. In football, are you going to get all the players from... Syria and all the players from the Premier League to come together on a common ground of what they want. Can FIFA Pro do it across the board? It seems like a big ask to go and try well, and fight these battles with every it, single football union. No, I agree. And and the, the the bigger issue is not so much. I think you could probably do something across the top flights, but the issue is if you're the PFA, right? You're balancing the needs of Liverpool and Manchester United players with the the needs of you know the guys in the conference 
or the National League or whatever the hell it's called now, who are also professional. And, you know, the people in in, in women's football who are also professional. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, at the bottom of the pyramid, um, and in fact, in women's football too, they want to play more games because they want to make more money, which is totally understandable because those people, you know, are making 300 pounds a week or 500 pounds a week or whatever it is, right? So it's it's almost like you can't have a one-size-fits-all uh, situation. Um, I don't know. I, I think at least as far as rest times and red zones, um, I think they can make demands of the sport. And, you know, we limit air traffic controllers, truck drivers, right? Yeah. They're limited. And I think it's time to to, to find an intelligent scientific consensus that that limits players. And if the rules are the same for everybody, then then the rules are, need to be the same for everybody. And you take you take that into account. And I think at least at the top in the you know at the highest level where money's not really an issue for these people, um and which is also where they play the most games, I I, I think you can reach an agreement. Right? The question is is the will there? Yeah, and I I do remember a couple of years ago seeing somebody I think it was somebody from UEFA sort of in an offhanded reply said, well, we could just increase the size of squads. But I mean, that's only going to help the rich clubs. So that'll help Liverpool or Manchester City or United. But it's not going to help a Brentford or a Bournemouth who can't afford to carry a big squad. And even at those top clubs, Pep and Klopp and Conte, etc., have all spoken about how they prefer to work with small clubs or smaller squads. So you're just going to end up with players kicking their heels unless there are actual limitations put in that this player can't play more than this many minutes in this period of days. And that's just what it is. Yeah. So, I mean, that is one of the big things that does need to be addressed, I think, over the next two years. I I invite you and anybody. I mean, I wrote a column about it at the time, but you can go on the FIFPRO website. It's actually really well done, the report. And they explain like the whole concept of of being in the red zone, um, which is sort of when you play too many consecutive matches without a period of, I think, at least five days off or, or, or something like that. And how it's generally proven if you play, if you spend too much time in the red zone during a season, the likelihood of you getting injured is that much higher. Um, you know, obviously last season, Harry Maguire was rubbish, but the year before that... <laughs> You know, he actually spent, I think he spent 100% of the season in the red zone. Mm. And I wonder, you know, whether to some degree that might have had to do with the sort of bad season he had last year. You know, he simply overworked. Others might say, no, it's just that Maguire's, you know, overrated and, and rubble, not even overrated. But he's not awful, though. I mean, that's the thing. We, we know as a fact that Harry Maguire is not an awful football player because we've seen him be a good yeah. football player. But, I mean, another example of that is in the 14-15 season, Jordan Henderson got run into the ground by Brendan Rodgers, playing next to Gerrard in midfield, and Gerrard at that point couldn't really move much anymore. Henderson was having to do all of his own running and all of Gerrard's running game after game after game. And in the following season, when Klopp takes over, he gets a foot injury that is basically down to the amount of work he'd put in the previous year. And he'd never really had injury problems up until then. 
but he had two serious injuries that year, a serious injury the following season. He missed a chunk of the following season after that. He managed to stay largely healthy in 1819, had a season-ending injury in 1920, a season-ending injury in 2021. And he's, last season, he, they managed to manage his minutes because they brought in that company from San Francisco who were able to help them sort of manage loads a lot better. But now this season, because he's had to play a bit more than expected already, he's injured again. And you could almost date that back to that one season where Rogers just put so many miles on him and so much hard running that it just has the knock-on effect. And Harry Maguire, I think you're right. I think he got overplayed to an extreme extent. That was an extraordinary long season because obviously the re uh, the rearranged Euros came at the end of it as well. And last season he was, by and large, awful. But we know he's not an awful footballer, so there has to be another reason for it. No, and like you said, and 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 it's not just the physical injuries. You know, there's there's mental health issues mm. too, right? The way you cope with it. I, I'm sure Harry Maguire's head is not a great place to be right now, and he's had to cope with a lot. And I'm, I'm not making excuses for him. I, you know, not everybody responds the same way, but you know, but he had the, had all that stuff in Greece that went on as well, of course, and of course, but he's getting you know, abuse uh, on social media. And is I think the big thing for Harry Maguire as well is he's so close to his family, and he was seeing his brother and sister having to constantly go to war for him on social media. That's obviously going to have an effect on him as well when you see the people you love, and now they're getting abuse as well because you've had a couple of bad games. It. It is such a strange thing, though, because, I mean, everybody has bad days at work. And if there was just somebody standing beside beside you, berating you while you do whatever job it is you do, that's eventually going to have an effect on you as well. And when it's thousands of people doing it as it is for professional footballers, it's mm-hmm. clearly going to have a knock-on effect on your confidence as well. So is this the longest you've spent talking about Harry Maguire on a Liverpool <laughs> podcast? I love a good chat about Harry. I do. Um, I think Gary Gary Neville's probably the only person who likes to talk about it more than me. Um, <laughs> Guy, before uh, sorry, Gab, before I let you go, um, the last two Juventus players to come to the Premier League with questions over them because maybe their moves to Juve hadn't gone the way they were expected to go were Bentoncourt and Kulosevsky, who both joined Spurs. And they have both been largely excellent for Spurs under Conte. Is there is there hope that Arthur, away from Juventus, at a club now that he might not have been the first choice target, but they've taken him in, giving a sign that they at least want him at the club, whereas like with the Juve thing, it might always just have been a but we don't want Pjanic anymore and our books are a mess. So let's see what we can find. Um, Is there a case that he might just be able to find that spark, get back to the level that saw him earn the move to Barcelona? Maybe a Klopp hug can do wonders for him. Do you you think there is a situation in which he can come to England and do, and and become the player he was hoped to be? Oh, I, I, I think so. I, I don't think you ever shut the door on a player or, or make a make a definitive judgment on somebody, let alone somebody who's 26 years old and somebody who has shown, you know, the skills are there. When you see him play, you can see that he is a technically gifted player and he's not a bad athlete either. Um, 
I don't know so much. I think the parallels with Benton Core and Kulusevsky, I, I get what you're driving at. Um, I think it's slightly different. Kulusevsky, you know, is a freak of nature with a really unusual skill set who's difficult to, to place in a team um, because he's just such an unusual player. And I think the coaching changes didn't help him and Allegri kind of quickly lost patience with him. Um, but he's still very young. So I think that's a slightly different situation. Bentoncourt, um, you know, we saw Bentoncourt be really good at Juve. And then we saw him struggle a little bit at Juve, although he was nowhere near as bad as some people, some people I think suggest when, uh, when they sold him to Spurs. So in some ways that was a kind of a, kind of a shorter way back. You know, Archer hasn't really produced in four years. I mean, I think that's right. Maybe not four years, maybe three and a half years. He, he, he had a good start at Barcelona. Um, I, that's the difficult thing, you know. Um, it's harder when you've been kind of knocked off your stride for longer. It's harder for you to come back, right? Um, so I think that's going to be that's going to be the challenge for Klopp. But like you said, like it's 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 a low risk, high reward situation. And worse comes to worse, you know, he eats up some minutes in midfield, which is not a bad thing. That's exactly it. And and if that's all he does, then that will suffice because the main reason he's been brought in is because of Liverpool's injuries. And if he can help them get through that, that in itself is a win. Um, Gab, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Obviously, everybody knows where to find you. At Marcotti on Twitter, ESPN senior writer. You do the Gab and Jules podcast, which is absolutely brilliant. And uh, hopefully, hopefully this one goes better than Mario did. <laughs> yes. You're not setting the bar very high there. No, it's a low bar. It's a low bar. But uh, thanks a million, Gavin, and hopefully right. talk to you again soon. Cheers. Take care. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement. And we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, We'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.